for several years, <clears throat> I have had a growing frustration, I think, with weddings and our approach to weddings and some of the traditions and customs that go with weddings. And uh, <clears throat> more recently, I kind of began to go through some of the scriptures uh, and see what God had to say about those things and how they were conducted in, from the Bible standpoint, <clears throat> as opposed to many of the customs and traditions that we have today. So I made a study into the scriptures and then also did a little bit of study into the traditions of men and weddings as we know them today in America. I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on that part of it. I would rather spend our time more valuably uh, talking about God and the Bible and the meaning of marriage and the meaning of and how it ties together with the plan of God and salvation and why God made things the way they are with marriage and family and so on and how they do portend things of the future and of a spiritual nature. So that should be the focus. <clears throat> uh, I will touch on a couple of things. Uh, let's say just the wedding cake, for instance. Here's an article that came off the Internet. I have quite a few of them, and I'm not going to read much of them. Uh, but just a couple of salient points. It says the wedding cake goes back to the ancient Greeks. The newly wed couple would cut a sesame seed cake together to symbolize fertility and happiness. Sesame seeds, if they're in a cake, you know, they put a lot of them in there. So it's a fertility rite is what it is. Uh, do we trust God and what he has done and ask him for blessing and to fill our quiver with arrows? Or do we have some nonsensical symbolism of fertility. And the ancients and the pagans did a great deal of worship in regards to fertility. Uh, here's another article. It says, Cakes at a wedding have a long history filled with magic, symbolism, and fertility rites. Now, is that something that we want to be involved in? Magic? Doesn't God make it very clear what he thinks of that kind of thing? Uh, a groom in ancient Rome would take a bite of a special barley loaf and then break the rest over the head of his new bride, symbolizing the breaking of the hymen, and scatter the pieces to the guests who considered the pieces good luck, that they'd get married and have their hymen broken too. Uh, is this something that really ought to be a part of a wedding ceremony? Then they would... Uh, the ones that received the pieces, oh, they had a wedding ring. They passed nine times given to the maiden. And then she would have a vision of her future marriage partner. And it seemed more like magical spells than prayers. There's one here. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, let's see. They had they, they stacked cakes in front of the bride and groom up high, and then they would try to kiss over the top of the cakes. They would be challenged to kiss leaning across the top of the pile without tipping the cakes onto the floor, symbolic of a successful wedding night consummation. I ask you, would a bride, if she understood those things, want to do those things? Uh, it just doesn't 
It doesn't make sense. Um, cutting the cake might signify the end of the bride's role as a single woman or the end of her transitional role as a bride and a significant sexual significance in the bride and groom together cutting with a phallic knife through an outer icing that is difficult to penetrate into a cake that is associated with the bride's body. And then the flowers she carries represent the maidenhead. It's all about sex as opposed to the real meaning of these things. I'm not going to read any more of that. Uh, there's a lot on the Internet about the various traditions that are there. But just a little bit to show you that the traditions and the symbolism and so on are not really what they ought to be. Uh, like, well, for instance, another one that just comes to mind is the best man was there because often they stole their bride from neighbors somewhere, their enemies, so the best man was there to hack to death anybody that came from the family to try to steal the bride back. Uh, they, they put veil on the bride so that the demons couldn't understand which woman they were to take to try to steal the bride. So demonism comes into the matter of veils and into the matter of the bridesmaids and the attendants at the wedding. And it goes on and on. All right, let's dispense with that then and begin to understand what God says and see if that doesn't fit what we ought to be doing uh, more closely. Now, somebody gave me a tape a couple of weeks ago uh, that was made by Jim Rector uh, in 2002. He was a man that had a little ministry. He's died, I guess, a couple, three years ago, whenever it was. Uh, but he has some insight into ancient history of the Bible and how weddings were conducted uh, in a godly fashion and tied it together with the church, with Christ, with God. And I think that that is a valuable thing. Now, when he gave the sermon, he was using all these things as a background to, at the end, show what he felt was some new understanding of end-time events and the wedding of the Lamb. Uh, we understand far better than he did the wedding of the Lamb and the timing of it and some of the events involved with it. Uh, however, in that series on how exclusive is the church, toward the end of which I went through, the new heavens and the new earth, and to the return of Christ, and when the Father will actually come down to the earth and dwell with men, and that type of thing, and went through quite a bit about the wedding supper and so on, and the guests at the wedding, and who the bride is, who the 144,000 are more specifically, uh, went through a lot of information at the end of that series, or toward the end of it. Uh, but I didn't cover the beginnings of marriage, and... Uh, what was done in ancient Israel and what was done in the New Testament and how it relates to the physical weddings and then on into how it uh, reflects the marriage of Christ. I, I think I did touch on that some. But he lays a pretty good background for what he is leading up to. And I want to go through that background today and help us understand a little more where we should be. So I outlined... Uh, 
his tape, and I came up with, oh, I don't know, a big pile of pages here of notes as I went through that and jotted down the scriptures and some comments with it. Now, I'll apologize a little ahead of time because it is not my style to follow notes. Uh, you may have noticed that I don't use notes much. I often chop down some scriptures so I don't leave them out, and then I go from there and explain the scripture, but I don't follow notes. Someone told me sometime, some years back, that maybe I should write my sermons out because it might keep me from getting into trouble. And uh, I tried it, and I couldn't do it. I'd get ahead of the notes, behind the notes, uh, add additional stuff and get lost and couldn't even find my place in the notes. And uh, it's just not me. Some people can do that. Uh, I'm incapable of it, I, I think. Maybe with a great deal of training I could, but uh, I prefer just to go at it, and then if I make a mistake, I can come back and apologize later, like I did that 1200 B.C. A.D. thing, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Sometimes the mind will make a wrong turn or twist, and you realize, oh, well, I didn't, that's not the way that actually was, so you have to go back. If I'd had it all written out and read it word for word, that wouldn't have happened. But, you know, I'm not that way. So please bear with me as I try to follow this outline, because uh, this is hard for me to do. I'll, I will add some scriptures he didn't use a little bit here. Uh, but I think the approach I want to take is to go through his outline, because he gives a nice overview, and then perhaps next week come back and add some detail, go back to some of these same scriptures and others that fit with them, and add some more detail that has meaning for us and is instructive to us about the whole situation. So I'm going to start with his outline and kind of follow it through for the most part, I think, and we'll see what happens here. I, I think that he did a very good job insofar as he went. And when he got to the end of the tape, uh, he didn't understand, truly, the new heavens and new earth, but he did understand more than we had understood in worldwide previously. So he did move forward somewhat. He just didn't go all the way with it and understand the whole picture about atonement and the feast and so on. Uh, but up to that point, I think he does a very good job, and even up including that point, he gave us some information. He just didn't quite know what to do with it or where to place it and how it all fit together. But we'll, we'll work on that when we get to that point. He did begin in Revelation 19, uh, beginning in verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. So when the marriage of the Lamb comes, and there aren't many references to it as such, this being the primary one. Uh, but there are other attendant passages which give more detail and flesh it out quite a bit uh, without using that particular phrase, marriage of the Lamb, but certainly inferences to it and speaking of it. And it shows here that the wife has a job to do, and that is to make herself ready for the wedding. Now, obviously, we take this in a spiritual context. Uh, you can go back to Proverbs 31 if you wish. I won't go there today. It just comes to mind uh, about the various things that a bride should be trained to do. 
a chapter which all mothers should read very carefully and be sure that they are training their daughters to be able to fulfill what is said there in Proverbs 31. When a girl is married, she, has, she takes on responsibilities. And they are outlined fairly well there. She needs to be skilled at and know how to fulfill those responsibilities outlined there. So it is a mother's job, a father's to one degree or another, but primarily a mother's job to train her daughters in these skills. Now, obviously, there's a spiritual fulfillment there, and it is expressed here in Revelation 19 about the bride making herself ready to marry Christ. But if we're to marry Christ and rear his children, had we not better be skilled at certain things? Prepared, ready, knowledgeable, knowing what to do and how to do it. A lot of girls get married and hardly know how to boil water or make macaroni and cheese. They don't know how to bake, they don't know how to cook, they don't know how to sew, they don't know how to milk a cow, they don't know how to do a lot of things. Milk a cow, where'd that come from? But there are many things in Proverbs 31 that are covered specifically and in principle of the things a physical bride needs to do. And we have to be prepared, do we not, to take care of Christ's children, our children, as they will be at that time, and feed them, clothe them, take care of them, provide a right kind of society, a right kind of economic situation that will not implode upon itself, that will not be filled with graft and greed and uh, communism and all the things that we see wound into the economies of this world. We need to know how to build a right society so that our children can live in peace and in prosperity and without fear and everything be taken care of. They can go to bed safe at night. Now that is quickly being taken away from our world today, but making yourself ready entails a great deal. And to her was granted. It wasn't something that she could just simply take on. And it does say in Isaiah 54 that... Uh, our righteousness would be his righteousness. I think it's the last verse or two of Isaiah 54. God has to grant righteousness. He has to grant his kind of love. We cannot spiritually prepare ourselves without help. It is impossible for a human walking by the flesh to prepare himself spiritually. We have to have help in order to accomplish that. So she didn't just do it all on her own. It was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the linen is the righteousness of saints. So we see a symbolism here. The wearing white linen is appropriate for marriage. So we talk about wedding garments here. Uh, I don't think he did talk about that a great deal, but I'll get to it. When we get to that point, I start adding detail. But the white linen 
Uh, Isaiah 52 comes to mind. We're to array ourselves and, and put on our wedding garments. So we do have a responsibility of actually putting on the garment of righteousness, of becoming righteous, but it shows here the righteousness also has to be granted in accord with God's ways and as we shall see in His Spirit. Because overcoming and growing and becoming righteous does not happen without the Spirit of God. Not true righteousness. It has to be there. So, he said to me, Right blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's an interesting point. You have to be called to the wedding or marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, we'll get to John 6.44 a little later on. I'm not going to go there now. But it is a calling that has to be. You don't just decide you're going to marry Christ and go do that. There are a lot of people who think they have a relationship with God and Christ today and call themselves Christians who will not be a part of the bride of Christ. And they'll even talk about it. They will tell you how they're going to be part of the 144,000 or how they're going to be part of the bride when Christ returns. And I can show by Scripture that they will not be. Luke 14 comes to mind about the, I think it's Luke 14, uh, about where a wedding, a supper was made and all kinds of people were bidden and they all gave different excuses as to why they couldn't come. And then Christ brought it down and said, they're not going to be at my wedding supper. So even some who were bidden, who were invited, in many different categories he gives there, will not be there. So, what does that tell you? I think it tells you that you have to follow the prescribed manner which he delineates and defines in the Bible. There is a way, and there is only one way, and it has to be through Christ. It has to be the true Christ, and there are certain rules, regulations, procedures that have to be followed. You know, in our world today, you're cute, and I think you're cute too, let's get married. And... They don't go through a great deal of preparation. Now, they may go through a great deal of preparation in terms of the actual wedding. The cake has to be just right. The, the rings have to be just right. The, the clothes have to be just right. The bridesmaids and the grooms and the, the chauffeur and the limo and on and on ad nauseum. They'll spend great time, effort, energy, and money to get everything physically the way they want it. But it is, is it truly the kind of wedding it ought to be? Have they prepared themselves in terms of maturity, in terms of emotion, in terms of skills, in terms of understanding what marriage is about, and understanding the relationship that should be between a man and a woman? Do they clearly understand their role in the marriage? So many go through all the physical preparation and then they get married, and then they don't know what to do next, other than physical. And once they get past that, they're kind of lost in terms of 
how the marriage should be conducted. And that leads to divorce. It leads to bad marriages and problems. You know, any time you set yourself toward a goal, toward a purpose, whether it be business or any other matter, a sporting event perhaps, you have to train, you have to prepare, you have to learn, you have to know the difficulties and the opponents you will face, you have to have a business plan, if it's business, and have an idea of where you're going and how you're going to get there. If you go and ask a loan from a bank, well, until recently, now you could borrow money and do anything you wanted to do because credit was easy and they were trying to put us where we are today. But traditionally, you had to come up with a business plan. You had to show them exactly what you were going to do with the money, what your purpose and goal was, how you would go about it, how you would accomplish it, and how then you would be able to pay the money back with interest. And traditionally, it was pretty rigorous. It wasn't always easy to get a loan. You about had to prove to them you didn't need one in order to get one. So a great deal of preparation goes into business and sports and many other things. But people don't do that with marriage very often. They just decide they're in love and let's get married. And it's mostly physical appeal without the kind of preparation that needs to go there. So we'll find in the Bible that it's not that way. It's just not automatic. That you might be bidden to the wedding supper, but you have to prepare and be ready for it. That's why Revelation 19 speaks as it does. I can already tell I'm not going to get through this whole outline today. Uh, but just considering the marriage here in Matthew, I'm in Matthew, Revelation 19, obviously it has great spiritual overtones. Now we go back to Genesis 2, and we know the story back here pretty well. But God starts this right at the very beginning of man's history. The very first relationship that was formed was what? Marriage. He created Adam, and he said, It is not good that man should live alone. God did not create Adam to live in a single state. And most men who find themselves living in a single state find that they have frustrations in it. And single women do, too, for that matter. It goes both ways. The natural, normal state that God created was for man and woman to be married and to have a good marriage. Now, God did his job pretty well here. He made Adam made him a handsome, intelligent, fairly well-educated individual, I'm sure, from the very beginning. He looked at him and said, you're not complete. Now, he made him in his very image. God is shaped just like Adam in every respect, uh, as, a, as close as a physical manifestation can be. God is not a mannequin, and Adam was not a mannequin. Uh, man is made in the exact image of God, and woman made in a similar image, only quite different in many respects. 
but God made her appealing to a man. So he made a wife a help meet for him, uh, a help appropriate to him, something to help complete him, to help him fulfill his job and purpose on the earth. So God made marriage. And when he had made a woman out of man, man didn't come from woman, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? That is easily answered, I think. It's an argument that goes on and on. But the chicken came first, of course, because God created live people and live animals who could then have seed and lay eggs and that type of thing. But it is instructive to us to understand that God made man first. He did not make woman first and take man out of her. He made him first and took her out of him. Because he is the key figure, and she then is a help, a complement to, and completes him. He's not better than her by any means, although after what Adam and Eve did, she was put in abject subjection to him and became almost a slave and chattel throughout most of man's history. Now that changed in the New Testament as we will eventually see, but that's the way it was not from the beginning but shortly after the beginning. And she was looked down upon from that time. She had pain and sorrow and childbirth and all kinds of problems that she wouldn't have had otherwise. And he had to also go through a great deal of working by the sweat of his brow and dealing with weeds and thorns and thistles in order to make a living. So the life of both of them became far more difficult right after the marriage. They were not fully prepared. They had not been fully trained, as Proverbs 31 would show. And when trouble came, I mean fairly soon probably after the marriage when Satan arrived, whether it was... Uh, the next Sunday after, as Herbert Armstrong thought, or sometime down the road, perhaps that is not able to be understood at this point. Who knows? There are various theories. It could go either way. But the Bible does not specifically say. Satan is an opportunist, however, and as soon as God allowed him to, obviously he approached Adam and Eve, Eve first. And they were new on the earth. They had not, even though they were intelligent, and beautiful as people, and I'm sure created very nicely without degeneration and bad genes and all kinds of things that have come about since, they were made quite nicely. And yet, they did not have the maturity, the control, or the knowledge of how to run a relationship. So, so as soon as they were married and pressure came, what happened? They began to accuse each other. They began to accuse God. <laughs> they said some terrible things to each other in accusation. And I'm sure that those things came back to haunt them all through their marriage, which lasted for 900-some years. That's a long way to go with a bad attitude and blaming one another and saying it's all your fault. Would have been nice that they had the capacity and the control 
not to have done the things that they did. But they didn't understand. Or if they did understand, they did not have the control to say what they should have said and act as they should have acted. Anyway, uh, Adam said, this is Genesis 2.23, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She was taken out of me. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It does say he took a rib from her. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. There shouldn't be a shame at all between husband and wife. And there was would have been no shame even with the children running around naked if they hadn't sinned and come to understand evil. But once they understood it, then they were ashamed, and they even hid from God who had made them because they did not want God to see them naked. They were not aware of nakedness up to that point, in other words. <coughs> so they were to become one flesh, and we'll see later on that that was through the sexual act that they became one flesh. Uh, there is a story here that is more important than procreation or physical bliss in marriage as human beings. Now, those things are important, yes, but there's a bigger story here that we need to understand, that with the very creation of mankind, God established a purpose and a plan of salvation that would be seen through marriage. And even Christ is compared to Adam in the sense that there was Adam who sinned and fell short, and there was Christ, the second Adam, who represented mankind from that time forward, who would do things better than Adam did them, <coughs> and that would lead to a better marriage in the future. So he said, let us make man in our image. They were to become like their maker. They were to think act, live, be like their Creator. Let's go to Romans 8. To Romans 8. And here, let's pick it up in about verse 14. <clears throat> well, let's go to, to, to 13. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. In other words, control, put aside, do not give in to the deeds of the body. That is, the evil, wrong things that lead to frustration and, and, uh, and sin. But it isn't that sin of itself is as bad as the effect of sin. What sin causes in a person emotionally uh, and so on when they've sinned. Sin in and of itself sometimes can be fun, can feel good, can seem right. Uh, a stolen apple is sweeter sometimes than one that you pick off your own tree, to use an expression that is fairly common. However, the effects later on of stealing that apple can create all kinds of problems. 
Um, I mean, you know, you can go to jail <laughs> or you can go into emotional frustrations of various sins because there is an after effect. <clears throat> All right. Mortify or kill the deeds of the body and you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, My Father, My Father. So he's speaking here of a spiritual relationship between the Father and His children, those of us here on the earth who are the children of God. Now Adam was a son of God, and we are carrying on sons of God today, but Paul is speaking here in Romans of a spiritual sonship. So the analogy between our human physical lives as people here on the earth are analogous to spiritual sonship with God. And the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Now, he came to this earth, he suffered a great deal, and learned by those things he suffered, and then he died. And we are here to be heirs with him of the promise of eternal life. He is in, or at, his Father's throne in heaven today, and he is coming to live on this earth, and bring his bride with him to train the earth to live in peace and happiness so that all his sons, all his children, can have a happy, not a dysfunctional family. And we are here <clears throat> as a body, as a church, to learn how that is done. And our physical marriages are about that. That's what they picture. Most people don't think in those terms most of the time. Most people just look upon it as a physical union, and it is a physical union. But it pictures a spiritual union with our Father in heaven and his Son, who is to become our bridegroom. Now let's consider Abraham... God dealt with Adam, and then the flood came, and man was destroyed because of sin and evilness, and that the relationship between man and God was not good. So God destroyed mankind. Then it started over. Well, he almost destroyed mankind. But after Noah and his sons and family, it began afresh, and man began to multiply again on the earth. But man was essentially evil and did not understand the relationship with God as it should be. So came the Tower of Babel, confusion and so on. People were scattered. And then God looked down and he said, I have a plan, I have a purpose, and here's a man I can work through, I believe. His name's Ab Abram. So he began to work with him. And eventually, as Abraham or Abram passed tests, God changed his name to Abraham. He called him what he was and had become. But he opened the door to God's plan because he said, in Abraham will the whole world be blessed. Abraham had a son Isaac, 
And later on, a son, he had a son, a grandson of Abraham called Jacob, who also had trials and tests with God, and then became called, or came to be called by God, Israel, instead of Jacob. Because he was going to found, through Israel, through Jacob, a relationship with a small number of people that would grow into a larger number of people who would be trained in the ways of God and hopefully live by them and there could be a marriage. So the marriage of Abraham, the marriage of Isaac, the marriage of Jacob became very important parts of the story. We recently went through those in the series about our fathers and even some of the detail of those marriages. Abraham was the father, and he was the one in control. Isaac did not go to the movies or the bowling alley or to school and pick out a girl that he thought was cute and decided he wanted to marry. That's not the way it was done at all. In this case, Abraham who was a righteous man, understood that there were certain people that should not be married to his children. So he sent his most trusted servant to people who were of the same family, and God intended that marriage be along racial lines as well. That's a different story, on a physical level at least. Now Christ is going to marry people of all races, as part of the 144,000, that can be made very plain. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile uh, at all. Paul made it very clear. There's neither male nor female, Greek or Jew. Now, we are male and we are female, aren't we? We are also physically Greeks and Jews. But he's saying from a spiritual standpoint, there is no difference. A female has just as much right to enter the kingdom of God as a male. A Greek has just as much, or a Gentile of any stripe, uh, has just as much right to enter the kingdom of God as any Jew. God does not make a difference there whatsoever on a spiritual level. But on a physical level, he did, and it certainly had an importance in terms of spiritual understanding. You see, those who might not be Jews physically have to become spiritual Jews. So what do they do? They change themselves. They change their worldly, human way of thinking, and they convert to a different way. And as they learn that way and learn to walk in it, then they begin to qualify to be a bride of Christ, even though they might have physically not qualified since he was physically, while he was on the earth, a Jew. And he would have had to have, had, he, had it been in the plan for him to marry, he would have had to have married within Israel, just from a physical standpoint. He could not have married outside the race. Now, it was not in the plan for him to marry while he was here. That would have led to all kinds of problems, and there are people who think he did, and it has led to all kinds of problems, and some of them think that they're more important than they ought to think because of who they think they're related to. That's a different story.
But you have to prepare to be the bride of Christ. That's how we started off in Revelation 19, to prepare to be the bride. So if we, whatever race we might be a part of, are to be a part of the bride of Christ, we have to go through a spiritual preparation, just as a physical couple should go through all kinds of preparation. And I already covered that, not just in terms of the wedding itself, which becomes almost more important to them than the marriage. So they're all a Twitter about the wedding itself, and then when they get married and suddenly they're looking not at a wedding but at a marriage, they're lost because they've not truly prepared for that. Now that is a very common mistake. And marriages would be far better if they would spend the engagement period preparing in terms of maturity, knowledge, wisdom, understanding, and learn about relationships between man and woman from God's Word. You can't go wrong doing that. And that is something that we need to begin to emphasize more and more because it is something that is so overlooked in the world and so many marriages have gone on the rocks because of lack of proper preparation. Now, isn't it true that we read the Scriptures about the marriage of the Lamb and it's something off in the future and not a great deal. Now, understand this. There is not a great deal said about the wedding and the ceremony itself, is there? But go from Genesis to Revelation, and there is an enormous amount written about how to prepare our minds, our bodies, our emotions, our spiritual maturity to be able to handle the marriage to come, to be qualified to rule in the kingdom of God as the bride of the king. Now, on this earth, at least in terms of royalty, <clears throat> when children are born who are in a kingly line, they start out when those children are very, very young, training them in what it's like to be a prince or princess. Not just to walk around saying, I'm a princess, and a... Uh, superior attitude, which they manage to get on their own. But they are trained in all of the protocols, all of the traditions from childhood, all about international relations, about how to get along with other peoples and nations around the world. They go through intensive training because someday they might be king or queen. And God does the same with us. He knows exactly how to go about the marriage, the wedding, the ceremony itself. But there's an engagement period here where we are to be preparing ourselves for the marriage and how to conduct it. That is the key and most primary thing. And that ties in with what I said earlier about mothers and fathers, preparing their children from the time they're little bitty 
to be prepared for the responsibilities that are to come. There is no excuse for a woman to get married not knowing how to properly clean a house, how to cook well, and many of the skills that she needs. She should know how to sew. She should know how to do many things. There again, go back to Proverbs 31. I'm not going to spend the whole time on that. So, and I may go back into detail a little bit, uh, not today, but later on, about the marriage and how it was carried out with Abraham, who sent his son, or sent a messenger. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit here. Let's go to Ezekiel 16. This is a pivotal scripture along these lines, Ezekiel 16. So says, again, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. Now, God had set it up with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to marry ancient Israel as she came of age and became not just a few children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but became a people. It was a people that God had selected through Abraham and was going to work through that lineage to prepare a bride. And the God of the Old Testament, Melchizedek, Christ, was to be the groom. So Jerusalem had grown from Abraham on down and Israel, but they hadn't always gone the right way. They often went down a wrong path. So he said, cause her to know her abominations, and, th and say, thus says the eternal God to Jerusalem, your birth and your nativity is of the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother was a Hittite. Now, their father and their mother really had been Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, uh, Rachel, you know, that God had chosen. But when God looked down upon Israel, he said, man, you look like Amorites and Hittites. You just look, look like the rest of the Gentiles around you to me. You don't look like the seed of Abraham. You're not like Abraham, your father. That's why it's so important that we've considered here at the end time Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and how they lived and what their character was, Joseph, Ephraim, because that's how we're supposed to look. And God looked down at Israel and says, you don't look like your fathers at all. You look like a bunch of Gentiles to me. Sad. As for your nativity, in the day that you were born, your navel was not cut, neither were you washed in water to supple you. You were not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. Now, what does he do? He takes Israel back in an analogy of a girl who was to grow into a young woman. And doesn't he take this all the way back and say, from your beginning forward, I have to consider Again, it ties with us training our children in the ways of God so they might understand how God would conduct a marriage, how we should as human beings conduct our lives so that our marriages, our families, our children will be what God wants them to be. It is so, so important that we consider these things. Now, ask yourself honestly as you look out at this world, how many marriages out there reflect God the Father, His Son, and the Bride of Christ? And even, as we consider this analogy in Ezekiel 16, 
we're going to see that Israel as a whole did not live up to what she should have. From her very beginning, she tried to rebel. God started it with some righteous men, then he took them into Egypt. And when they came out of there, he offered them a marriage covenant. But they were trained in the ways of Egypt. And they were used to griping and complaining and murmuring and bitching and all those things that they did. They were selfish to the core. And when they didn't get whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted it, they murmured and complained and whined. As a young girl, that's the way they were. That's not the kind of young girl God wanted. And it's not the way we should rear our children. See, I don't want to make this into another child-rearing series. You had quite enough of that before and got tired of hearing it. But we need to understand in the overall flow of God's plan the importance of these things, lest we be like the marriages of this world and don't conduct them in a proper manner and don't have the proper skills once we get there to make the thing work the way God wanted it to work. There's where the rub comes. It's hard to train our children properly. It's hard to take them when they're little, when they've just been born, and begin training them right then for their marriage someday. But that's what God is saying here. Just as we, when we're babes in Christ, just baptized, have to start growing immediately towards spiritual maturity so that we can conduct ourselves in a marriage with our Savior in a proper manner so that we are a light to and an example to the world of the millennium, the great white throne judgment, and as we understand it today, even prior to the return of Christ, were to be a light on a hill for the rest of the world to see that here is the right way for a bride betrothed to a Savior to come will act and be. That's why it's important for us not to gossip and backbite and whine and murmur and sin, all the different kinds of sin that the Bible mentions, because we are being prepared as a bride. And God has a lot to say about that preparation. So you weren't swaddled. It's just like you were, you know, you were born, but nothing happened. It's as if any training you might have gotten didn't mean anything to you. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you, to have compassion upon you, but you were cast out into the open field of the loathing of your person in the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you polluted in your own blood, I said to you, when you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you, when you were in your blood, live. So God made a proposal to them, gave them an opportunity. He gave them his laws, and he says, why will you die, O Israel? Choose righteousness and live. If you're going to conduct a marriage, and that's what this chapter is about, is the analogy of marriage to him. You have to conduct yourself in certain ways. I've caused you to multiply as the bud of the field, and you have increased and waxed and great and are come to excellent ornaments. Your body's grown. Your breasts are fashioned, and your hair is grown, whereas you were naked and bare. So she had gone through puberty and grown into a body of a woman. 
Now when I passed by you and looked upon you, behold, the time was the time of love. She had reached the age of marriage, in other words. Well, we might view it differently in our society today. Maybe I should explain the definition of the time of love. Because it seems by the time kids today are in the third grade or junior high school or beginning to go into high school, it's the time of love. No, it isn't. It's a time of growing up and maturing and learning to control oneself. God puts us as we grow up into a situation where we need to learn to control ourselves, our emotions, our feelings, even the hormones and things we begin to deal with as we enter into puberty and then grow into physical maturity. The mental, emotional, and spiritual maturity follows physical maturity. So the time of love isn't when you become physically developed to the point you can have sex. That's not the time of love. That's the time of learning to control yourself and to prepare yourself for the time of love which comes at the time of marriage. That's why it's wrong to make out, to kiss, to fondle, to do things which are really preparation for sex when you're young. Those are things that should be reserved for marriage and with your mate. Now, are they difficult to control? Yes, they are. Because the physical body starts getting ready long before the mind and the emotions are ready. And therefore, you have a control problem. How do I keep myself the way I should be? And before we're done, we need to understand how you should be and why you should be when it comes time to actually get married. And our society is totally upside down on all those things. But we'll save that for a little later. I'm just touching on it here. So it, had, it was the time of love. In other words, it was time to be prepared for marriage. And I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness, because she had disrobed herself before the nations, before the peoples, and had played the harlot. And that is not the way that an aspiring bride should be acting. Yes, I swore to you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Eternal, and you became mine. Now that happened at Sinai when Moses went up into the mountain of fire, and came down with the commandments and explained them to Israel and said, will you do this? In other words, a marriage ceremony transpired there. Moses was the uh, in-between or the mediator between God and Israel uh, in the position of, let's say, the ministry today in a wedding ceremony or a ceremonial situation. So it was his job to explain to Israel what the rules of the marriage would be. Now today, brides and grooms have a habit. They, uh, they make up their own vows. They make up their own rules. They throw out certain rules that might be traditional and pick their own rules. Sometimes they even pick whether they'll marry someone of the opposite sex or someone of the same sex. Now, that's kind of doing your own thing, isn't it? Well, that's not the way God set it up. 
That's wrong. So they make all kinds of false vows and false promises. And many girls today take out obey from the ceremony and put something different in there. So they just tailor their wedding and the covenant that goes with it, the ceremony, to fit what they want. Now, did God do that with Israel? Or did he thunder those commandments and say, Moses, go down there and you tell them what the marriage covenant is. These are the rules of the marriage. When we got down there, they were all naked, running around worshiping a golden calf and drinking and fornicating. Moses just threw the laws on the ground and broke them. You know, he must have suffered a great frustration there in that he had the rules of marriage written down by the very finger of God in that rock. And he came down and they were doing everything contrary to what those laws said. In disgust and frustration, he just threw them on the ground and broke them. He was the first one to break the commandments. I mean, literally, in that way. God says, get yourself back up here. We're going to do this over again. This time, he didn't throw them on the ground. But he did make Israel say, we will follow these rules. So he made a covenant with them, and they became his. Now, this was a betrothal. It was not yet a marriage because God put them through a period of time whereby he would find out if they would live by that covenant or not. It became binding like a marriage, and that's the way engagement was in those days, but it wasn't consummated yet into a full-blown marriage. Because there is a period of time where we need to prove projected husband and wife, whether we will follow through with those things or not. So he betrothed her. Then washed I you with water. Now, isn't this true of baptism? We come to understand God's way to one degree or another, and then we're baptized and washed in the water. Our past sins removed, washed away in that water which represents the blood of Christ there, which is actually what forgives sin. Well, actually, the Father and the Son forgive the sin, but the water or the blood in that case are symbolic of the actual forgiveness that comes from their mind and their heart. So we're baptized, and then we continue to be washed, do we not? We go through a period of brainwashing. Brainwashing is something all human beings need. Now, it's looked upon as a bad thing in this world where you brainwash people to think the way you think, governmentally or whatever. But is it not the same process, really, that God uses, where he washes our brains so that we begin to think like he thinks? The difference between him and the governments of this world is that he thinks right, and we tend by nature to think wrong, or wrongly, and as a result, we need our brains washed. So God says, 
He washes you with water. And that is New Testament teaching as well, where we're washed by the water of the Word till our brains are good and clean. Now, we may have come from all kinds of backgrounds when we're called into God's church, and we may have gone through this, that, or the other thing. We may have sinned greatly, and our emotions are wrong, our thoughts go in wrong ruts. We have all kinds of things wrong with our thinking. So we have to be washed and cleansed by God's Word so that we begin to think correctly, to think as God thinks, to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ, not just the way our mind has learned to go by walking the walk of the flesh, because it will lead us into hurtful areas. So I washed you with water. Yes, I thoroughly washed away your blood from you, not just rinsed them a little bit, but thoroughly washed. We have to be completely cleaned up, do we not? I washed away the blood from you, and I anointed you with oil. So oil or anointing is symbolic of setting us aside for a specific purpose. And his purpose, to anoint us with oil in that sense, is to begin to prepare us for his kingdom, the oil representing the Holy Spirit. And it requires the Holy Spirit of God for us to begin to understand and to begin to actually clean ourselves up. Because without the Spirit of God to transform us in our way of thinking and reacting, we as human beings are hopeless. People, through great power of will, can change some habits sometimes. But to come to think like God and to be like God and to react like God requires His Holy Spirit. And in the plan of God, that is pictured at Pentecost. And God showed great power on Pentecost because He wanted to demonstrate that through His Spirit it is possible for us to change, for miracles to occur. And Pentecost is a picture of the betrothal or the beginning of the engagement toward marriage. We'll get to a rundown of how the plan of God fits the whole Holy Day system. Now, in the church, we've always said that the Holy Days represent the plan of God. And that is a true saying. But even more specifically, the whole Holy Day system from Passover through the last great day are pictured by marriage. And all we go through as humans in marriage have a type in the holy days. So when you say it pictures the plan of God, you might also say the holy days picture the marriage of the Lamb from the very beginning through the fulfillment of the actual changing of the bride into spirit and what goes on beyond that. It's all laid out in the holy days and we'll see specifically how each holy day fits marriage before we're done. I didn't say before we're done today. All right, let's go on in Ezekiel 16. I'm spending more time on these by far than, <laughs> than Jim did, but uh, I, I think there's a lot here for us to comprehend and to learn. I'm not limiting myself to one 
sermon on this because I don't want to brush over it too quickly. He even said as he started that sermon, there's a lot more here, but he wanted, he was wanting to make a point at the end that was an increase in understanding from what we knew in Worldwide, as I said before. So he kind of hastened through this and even said there's a lot more that I could cover so I want to go into a little more depth and detail because I'm not here just to change our view of something having to do with the actual marriage ceremony of the Lamb. It's a bigger picture than that, and it's going to take more time than that. So if this turns into two or three or four sermons, I would not be at all surprised. So why don't I shut up talking about it and continue? So he anointed her with oil. Uh, and that picture's part of the engagement, set aside as a bride of Christ. Set aside for a holy purpose. So baptism sets you aside. It washes away the past. But the laying on of hands afterward pictures the giving of the Holy Spirit or anointing or setting aside with oil. So both of those analogies fit this situation. I clothed you also with broidered work, and shod you with badger skin, and I girded you about with fine linen, and I covered you with silk. So here was a young woman who had sinned, who had all kinds of problems, was bloody and naked and sinful before him, and he chose her, cleaned her up, washed her thoroughly, and set her aside in an engagement or betrothal situation. And then he began to adorn her. Now we're supposed to put on our wedding garments, as Isaiah 52, 1 and 2 say. And it's a process. And this was a process. He began to decorate her with the things that a bride needs to be adorned with. Now again, Proverbs 31 shows the skills, the capacities, the abilities, the attitude that ought to be in a bride, of being willing to serve, to give, to help. Her husband, her children, her neighbors around, the nations around even. It's a, it's a huge and important analogy there in Proverbs 31. So he began to decorate her with the things she needed, the garments of righteousness. Righteousness doesn't just come like that. You know, the Protestants would have you, all they have to do is accept Jesus and get sprinkled with water, and you're going to be in the kingdom of God. You'll be saved. You're going to heaven. Real simple and easy and quick, huh? You don't have to do anything either. Now, how many of you guys want to marry a girl who's going to say, okay, I'm married. Everything stops. Doesn't cook, doesn't clean, has a headache all the time. Whatever. She doesn't want to do the things that a wife should do. She has her excuses, and she's selfish. Is that the kind of girl you want to marry? Or do you want to marry one that's willing and able and trained and knows how to do and is willing to do it? I'll tell you what. When my little children were little, it was nice that their mother was willing to change those diapers. I changed very, very few. Even when she was sick, she'd get up and change the baby's diapers. She wouldn't even ask me. I liked that. But there was that willingness there and that mothering desire and instinct 
that she wanted to do those things. There were certain things with babies I didn't really care about. I like to dandle them on my knee. I like to chuck them under the chin. I like to bounce them on the bed and play with them. I like to talk to them, make them smile and giggle. But then, ooh, this one stinks. And they could just hand it to her and it'd be taken care of. Well, that's just a simple little thing. Unless you're having to change diapers, then it's not quite so simple. But when they had the diarrhea and when they had the colds and when they had all those things and the measles and the mumps, and there was mom. Isn't it nice to have mom and have mom willing, ready, and able? Those things don't come automatically. They have to be trained. Now, some of them in a mothering instinct, but sometimes the instincts aren't there unless they're trained to be there. There are a lot of women today who are dysfunctional as wives and mothers because they simply don't have the desire or need or want. They'd rather be career girls and let somebody else raise the kids in daycare or whatever. Well, God set her aside and washed her thoroughly, betrothed her, and then he began to give her the skills of righteousness and, and adorn her with those things. And he was very uh, concerned with and emotionally attached to this bride-to-be so that he gave her the best, the best he could possibly give. Girded you about with fine linen, covered you with silk. I decked you also with ornaments, and I put bracelets on your hands, and a chain on your neck, and a jewel on your forehead. It says nose in my margin, neither one of which appeals to me, because that's not what I grew up with. I don't mind rings and things, and earrings, but a jewel in the forehead or even in the nose is its a cultural thing. But not wrong. That's where God did put one. We could, might get used to it. Uh, and a beautiful crown upon your head. You were decked with gold and silver, and your raiment was of fine linen and silk embroidered work. You did eat fine flour and honey and oil, and were exceeding beautiful, and did prosper into a kingdom. A kingdom symbolizes then a marry you, and then you have children. You you grow. Uh, will you marry me? I'll get a job at Taco Bell. not the way it ought to be. It ought to be that a young man becomes stable. He has learned how to make a living. He's learned how to prepare to give his bride nice things, to be able to clothe and feed and house his children, his bride first and then his children. He should be a man who has learned skills. He should be a young man who has matured, who can't just get a job so that we can live on love and tacos, but so that he can truly provide. Now, this society today, <laughs> it's hard, and you might have to go into great debt and use your credit cards to get all these goo-gaws for your wife, B. So, I'm not criticizing anyone at this point who can't do what God did to Israel, Okay. All I'm saying is this is the way it really ought to be. When Abraham sent that messenger, that servant, to find a wife for Isaac, he sent all kinds of gold and jewelry and things to impress this young lady. Now, the fathers 
made the deal, the, the messenger made it for Abraham, for the father, was authorized to do so, found a girl. He prayed about it ahead of time, said, God, lead me to the right one. Let the one that comes out be the one that you intend for Isaac. So he prayed about it, but they were essentially arranged marriages. But if you remember the story, which we saw recently, the bride's father did ask her, do, do you want to do this? So she had a choice there, and whether the arrangement that had been made by the fathers was to her approval or not. And she could have said no. But she said, I will. I do. Now, if this guy had come and hadn't had any gifts for her, and said, I came a long ways, and I got a guy that works up here at Taco Bell for, for Abraham, you know, his son. You remember Abraham? Yeah, he's part of the family way back. But this kid works at Taco Bell, and he wants to marry this girl, and, and I brought a burrito along uh, to persuade her to come marry him. She might have said, I don't like burritos, thank you. No, the way it is done properly, society will get to this in the millennium. It may be hard for us to live up to it today. So, you know, if you can only give your wife a piece of costume jewelry, that's the best you can do under these circumstances today. She needs to be thankful and you need to be thankful for what you can do. So I'm not criticizing here. I'm saying the way things really ought to be and will be someday when we are living under circumstances where we can do it the right way. Now, in the meantime, we need to approximate these things the best we can. And we'll fall short of what God is able to do for Israel, I'm sure. But at least in principle, we need to try to follow the pattern and try to do that as much as we can like it ought to be. We're humans. And we are in a society right now that is going downhill economically very fast. And the end of this age is upon us. So there are modifying factors here. I understand that. But we do need to understand the parallels between physical marriage and spiritual marriage to God and how He does things. And then we can prepare as much under the circumstances today as possible to do it the way he would have it done. Maybe not in riches, but at least in principle. To give the best you can, the best you have, to your wife-to-be, and see if that's good enough for her, and she says yes or no. And it's not just the physical, because these physical things of the mind being washed, the body being washed here, or of the accoutrements for a bride, represent spiritual things. The clothing of righteousness is what these jewels and the ornaments that he put on her represent. So the spiritual meaning is always much bigger than what we're able to live up to physically. So she was decked with gold and silver. Her raiment was of fine linen and silk, embroidered work. You did eat fine flour and honey and oil. And he was able to provide those things. And were exceeding beautiful and did prosper to the kingdom. Then your renown went forth among the heathen for your beauty. He had fixed her up, dressed her up, 
as a nation representing God, Israel. For it was perfect through my comeliness. It wasn't that she was so wonderful until he drug her out of the way she was, cleaned her all up, fixed her up, straightened her out, and got her ready to be a representative of himself, of God himself. That's what you and I are called to do, be representatives as a bride for Christ himself. Pretty high calling. And we become mature or perfect through what? Through his comeliness, don't we? We come to be like he is. Now that puts a lot of pressure on men. Now we talk a lot about the bride, and we use the female a lot in talking about these things. But the man comes under extreme pressure, in some respects far more even than a girl. Because he is to represent to her Christ himself. He is to lead her, to guide her, to direct her, to train her, just the way Christ does the church. So if being the bride of Christ is an important analogy and puts a lot of pressure on a young woman, being like Christ and being the absolute leader, not just carrying a big stick. And that's the problem that we had in the church. We realized the world had essentially a matriarchal society, and women were in charge from the get-go, planning the wedding the way everything was going to be, and became my wedding to the girl. And once she got control of that, then she controlled everything thereafter. And children are oppressors, or women are our oppressors, and children reign over us, whichever is the way it puts it there in Isaiah 3. Both bad. Once they get the bit in their teeth, it's hard to take it out. Sometimes it destroys the whole relationship, just trying to get it wrested away from her. Once she is in a leadership position. The world had it all backwards. So we told the men, men, man up. You're to be the head of your house. You're to be the leader. You know what? They didn't have the skills to do that. They didn't know how to do that. So they just grabbed themselves a big club and said, woman, I'm a boss now. And oppressed her and abused her and misused her. And that was not the way God intended it at all. She should not be chattel. She should not be under your thumb. She should be in your warm, soft hand is where she should be. To love her, to treat her as an equal. But you are there to be her leader spiritually, to understand more than she does, to grasp God's plan better than she does, to be able, as Paul said, to answer her spiritual questions when she has them, you are to be to her as Christ is to the church. Now that puts a lot of pressure on you. So yeah, I can talk about Proverbs 31 and the virtuous woman and put pressure on the girls. Don't think you're getting off scot-free, guys, or husbands who are sitting here today. We're not just talking about young unmarried people. 
we're talking about marriage and how it ought to be. Because all of us, whether we're 20 or 80, are prospective brides of Christ to be a part of the spiritual family of God. So we all have a great deal to learn. So men, we have to learn to be a bride to Christ and have all the skills that a woman or a bride ought to have. And we're also to go above and beyond that and have all the skills that Christ himself, the husband, has. So there's more pressure on us than on the women. Let's understand that. We're not to rule simply because we're bigger, stronger, and uglier than they are. That's not what sets us apart and makes us the leader. What makes us the leader is the love, the concern, the compassion, the strength, the power, the skills in human relationships that we need to learn to properly lead our wives and future wives to be what they ought to be. The club men picked up in Worldwide was the wrong response. And the church failed to a great degree there in not being able to teach the men the right skills. They just told them, be in charge, so they took what skill they had, which wasn't much, and said, I'm in charge. And the girls, the women, suffered a lot. No, we have to learn the skills. We have to learn to be like Christ himself, men. And that's a challenge. That's a tough one. I don't think I'm even going to finish Ezekiel 16. So, through his comeliness, Israel was set apart to be what she ought to be, and he gave her the knowledge... He gave her the laws, he gave her the instruction on how she should be. Well, you know, knowing how you should be isn't always the complete answer. <clears throat> In fact, it rarely is. A lot of us understand things that we ought to be, but we struggle to be what we ought to be. Didn't Paul say, the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I want to do, I don't do? It was hard for him to control all his mind and his emotions. And Paul understood a lot, didn't he? He was an apostle of God, been taught directly and personally by Christ for three and a half years. He was given much, and of him much was required. But he had a struggle with it. So just knowing how you ought to be is only the beginning of the battle. It's an important part of it. Here's what I ought to be. Now how am I going to get there? Now most of us understand in great part how we ought to be and how we ought to think and how we should conduct our lives. But getting to the point we can do that is where maturity and control comes in. And it's not easy. So he said, through my comeliness, you became beautiful. I had put it upon you. But... There's always a big but in there, verse 15. But you did trust in your own beauty and played the harlot because of your renown and poured out your fornications on everyone that passed by, his it was. She was a slut. 
anybody, anytime, anywhere. That's the way Israel is today. It's the way this nation is today. We'll make alliances with anybody. We'll sleep with anybody. If it, we think we can gain by it financially or gain favor, power politically or militarily in the world, we'll make a deal with anybody. And that's the analogy that God uses. Yeah, he made Israel beautiful, made her a, you know, but she had pride in her beauty. She became vain. And then she began to show it off to others, and then others took advantage of that, and she gave it to others. And of your garments you did take and decked your high places with different colors and played the harlot thereupon, the like thing shall not come, neither shall it be so. God can't tolerate that. You've also taken your fair jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made to yourself images of men, and did commit whoredoms with them. And you took your broided garments and covered them, and you set my oil and my incense before them. The gifts that I gave you, you set before others. And took your broided garments and covered them. Oh, oh, let's see, go down to verse 19. My meat also, or food, which I gave you, fine flour and oil and honey, wherewith I fed you, you have even set it before them for a sweet savor. And thus it was, says the eternal God. It's like a wife, you know, her husband buys her some expensive perfume or something and gives it to her. And then she goes, puts it on and goes out and finds somebody else to sleep with. That's what Israel did. Not a pretty picture. Moreover, you've taken your sons and your daughters, whom you have borne to me, and you have sacrificed them to be devoured, is this of your whoredoms a small matter? Men and women who commit adultery and live a loose life train their children to be the same way. Now, the children have enough of a problem with the world out there teaching them that way of life without the parents emphasizing it. Though you had slain my children and delivered them to cause them to pass through the fire for them. Now we abort them. There's the love of a mother, isn't it? To abort your unborn children just because you don't want the responsibility or didn't like who the daddy is or whatever. Abortion is murder. And all your abominations and your whoredoms, you have not remembered the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and weren't polluted or were polluted in your blood. Before you reached puberty, you were young and innocent. And it came to pass after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, says the eternal. If you've also built you an eminent place, if you made a high place in every street, gone into false religion by our false lovers, and on and on it goes about how we've multiplied our whoredoms, committed fornication with the Egyptians, the people of this world, our neighbors, and so on and so forth. And he says you even became worse than the Gentiles around you. Because you not only hired yourself as out as a harlot, but you paid them. That's getting pretty low. Verse 32, But as a wife that commits adultery, which takes strangers instead of her husband, they give gifts to all whores, but you give gifts to all your lovers and hire them, that they may come to you on every side for your whoredom. Then he goes down and talks about her filthiness and her nakedness, and how he loathes that and will not tolerate that. So, if we're to be betrothed, 
if we're to be married, there is a code of conduct that is very important to God. And he lays it out here in Ezekiel 16 and says, I've called you to be the bride of my beloved son. And there's a certain way that you need to live to qualify for that. And your physical life here on this earth pictures that. From the time you're little, you have a responsibility to take care of yourself, to live the right way. Even a child is known by his works, Proverbs says. Because your life, be it boy or girl, as you grow up from childhood, is supposed to ultimately picture the marriage of Christ to his bride. We'll see more of that later on, but there are some things you have to guard, virginity being one of them, because you're to present yourself as a chaste bride to your husband, and he the same to you, because Christ is righteous and did not sin. We have a double standard in this world. The guys expect to be like the hound dog and chase down every girl they can catch, but the girl was expected to be a virgin. No, guys, a double standard won't work. You're supposed to be like Christ himself, who never said. Why put all the pressure on the girl? She has her responsibility to be that way, too. But so do you. And our society has it where neither one has any responsibility. But this is a very important analogy here. And it's supposed to start when we're little. And our parents are supposed to train us not to go the way of this world and how we should present ourselves as a wife or a husband and why it is important for us to be clean and to be pure because it does represent spiritual things. It's very important. And yet with this world, it's cheap and has no value. But we have a lot that we need to learn. Well, I've got to quit for sake of time today, but we'll pick it up and go from there.